Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here with another book review episode today. Today we'll be covering the 62nd, which is wild to say, 62nd edition of the Penguin Little Black Classics Review Collection. This is our attempt to wade through 80 slim volumes of world literature that Penguin collected. And today we're covering some haiku. Joining me today is co-host and local ponderer of note, Amanda. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) <laughs> a local legend in the pondering community. Uh, mm-hmm, Amanda is mm-hmm. here with us. Thanks for joining as always, Amanda. Oh, yeah. And first question for you, is haiku the plural of haiku? I think technically it is. I think so. Yeah, that's because t- I wanted to say we're covering haiku and haikus just sounds odd to me. Yeah. Like a sound an owl would make <laughs> or something <laughs> or that some other kind of bird would, would create or generate. Mm-hmm. At any rate, we're covering some haiku by the author Matsuo Basho, who was a monk, I believe, and who wrote in the 1600s. So we're dealing with some old poetry today. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the form, haiku is a form of poetry. And in fact, Amanda, and I just mentioned this to you, I sprung this on you before we started recording. <laughs> we are breaching our normal book review process and procedure today, not for the first time, but for the first time in a while. And that is that we are going to begin with the literary corner today. This is the educational segment of the podcast where we attempt to give some kind of literature knowledge to the listener. We need to just explain what a haiku is, I think. Do you agree? I agree. It's not a form that many readers growing up in the States or I presume England or even really any English speaking country would know very well because it's a Japanese form of poetry that... I'm not sure if it's proliferated anywhere else. How familiar are you with with haiku? I've had to read it before, and I I took mm-hmm. a, a Japanese culture class in college, you know, ages mm-hmm. ago, <laughs> where we discussed yeah. haiku a little bit. Um, but as far as like beyond that, no, I, I'm not really that familiar with haiku. I wonder if a if we were to just do a family feud style 100 person survey of people in Japan, how many of them would say, "Oh yes, I read some haiku every year." I don't I don't even know how contemporary this is anymore or how many right. people have kept up with the medium. I mean, frankly, if you did that with Americans and just reading poetry in general, if music was discounted, I don't know if many people would say they read any poetry per yeah. year on a per year basis. And yeah. so I yeah, I don't think it is uniquely Japanese. I don't know how popular it is, though. Um, it's sort of, I'm sure it's taught in their school system like some things are in ours, where it's a bygone piece of artwork that we, we don't make anymore, but we should understand and study. And so that's kind of how I've experienced it, too. Yeah. Well, let's get into the literary corner, then. The definition from Penguin's dictionary reads as follows. Haiku is a Japanese verse form consisting of 17 syllables and three lines of five, seven, and five syllables. Such a poem expresses a single idea, an image, or a feeling. In fact, it is kind of a miniature snap in words. Few Western poets have been able to imitate it successfully, and it was also attached to something called the imagist movement, which I didn't know what that was and had to briefly look it up. Mm -hmm. Do you think, firstly, just to get this out of the way, these haiku were not 575. I mean, some of them weren't even close. Or am I completely misreading something? Yeah, I think that's um, because of the the translation, I suppose. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I wonder if in the original Japanese form, it was 
the 575. I mean, some because as a person whose knowledge of haiku is quite shallow but, and basically extended to that definition, and, you know, I'm sure I read some throughout my educational time, but I do, some of the, the middle lines were not only not seven syllables, but were one syllable to, to mm-hmm. me. I, and so I wasn't sure. Okay, I'm glad that we had. I know we had the same translation because you found these the same copy online. Yeah. But yeah, it didn't. It struck me that I mean that these haiku had the sort of feeling that I anticipated, and the reading experience was largely the same experience. But the literal numbers of it didn't stack up as I expected them to. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of Western readers, American readers especially, expect the very rigid numbering, kind of like Shakespeare expects to be read in that right. um, iambic pentameter and that very strict, you know, you you can literally count them out. And this these did not hold up to that. I'm not sure if you picked up on that or if that bothered you or something. It didn't bother me so much just because I knew that it was a a translation. I know that um, when I was in high school, we had to, in my creative writing class, one of our exercises was to write a haiku and we had to follow the the five, seven, or seven, five, seven, or five, seven, five, whatever it is um, format. And so that was difficult, but I think I was more, I wasn't as nitpicky when reading this just because I know that it's, it's uh, it's not going to follow necessarily since there are some words that they have that are shorter and <laughs> that we have that are longer in translation. Definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. To to translate over the sounds would be, I mean, at that point you may as well just write your own haiku, probably. Mm-hmm. To to take the translation to that strict level of imitation and form, you may as well just create your own image because. At that point, you're probably going to have to interject words that they did not include or remove some that they had. And again, at that point, you're basically creating something. I would call that not even translating in a way. So just to get that out of the way, that's what a haiku is. If you, the listener, are unfamiliar with it, you can go Google some and read them in about two seconds. The probably best thing to recommend about a haiku is that since it's just trying to capture a moment or image, they're incredibly brief, probably the briefest form of poetry that I know of, unless again, I'm like misthinking or or oversimplifying. I don't know of a literary tradition that writes in such brevity. Unless again, I'm forgetting something. I think haikus probably, I mean, there's limericks, but I feel like limericks might be longer just because they have to have that punch at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like they have more rhythm and playful and like rhyme to them or something like that. Okay. Well, that out of the way, that's what we'll be covering today. The Matsuo Basho lips to chilled haiku collection now we will go and return to the land of the peacefulness and that's our normal (laughs) review segments we'll get back into the rhythm as usual let's begin with our one sentence simile reviews this is when we open the podcast with a kind of simple and playful review of the collection amanda what was your simile review for this one sure i said uh reading this is like doing some high level math uh (laughs) because Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I enjoy doing math. Um, I'll just start off with that. So this, some people might see this as maybe a negative comment since I'm an English major, mm-hmm. but actually math was my second favorite subject in school. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so what I enjoyed, right. is is akin to math in that there is a certain level of symmetry, right. And there's also uh, enjoyment in attempting to find uh, the solution, the meaning in this case of the haiku and the solution in a math problem. But that doesn't always mean, even though that process might be enjoyable to you in 
uh, it doesn't mean that you're actually in the end going to necessarily derive a whole lot of meaning from it or understanding. Yeah, I think the inclusion of high level in your description then is perfect because I think a lot of people love math in their young ages because you because there are definitive answers, mm-hmm. but then that's when you start getting into calculus and then co- certainly college-level math courses, and then that's when you start to realize that math, like any other sort of area of study, you'll wind up in a place eventually with no definitive answers, right? It's not an, we're not talking Y equals MX plus B, which is like an, in, you know, inarguable calculations, really simple stuff, basically logic problems. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, I think high-level math can feel that way. Weirdly, I chose something way more abstract, but for the same reason as you. And I I went really simple. I said reading this was like experiencing a dream. It was just kind of like dreaming, where after you finish it, you know it happened, but it can be difficult to explain. You might even like baffle someone with your explanation, Mm -hmm. and it kind of has that feeling of you had to be there. And in a haiku, I think it turns, hey, you had to be there into... Well, you have to experience it the way I did, which will always with haiku, I think, include outside knowledge, connections that you can't really explain because you have to bring so much to the poem that you're going to connect with some that other people will be completely baffled by. And so they're definitely evocative, but they don't always make sense. And you can't always explain why it evokes something to you, whereas another one did not. And so they have this light dreamlike quality to them. I don't think they're confusing to read in any way, though the depth and connections will be, I think, confusing to translate at times to other people and can be difficult to explain. Yeah, I think that's great. And it is very dreamlike because it's there's a lot of like imagery uh, in there. And if you, when you're reading a, a haiku, you can kind of understand like some of the imagery, but what they actually see or what they're trying to pinpoint in the haiku, it might be lost on you as a, as a secondhand kind of person looking into it. So I think that's a, a really apt description. And I think one thing I was worried about was reading a collection like this, that the haiku would kind of bleed into each other. I think some of the themes maybe do, but I never felt like, and maybe I just read them intentionally or with intent but I, I gave myself time to pause after finishing one. I, I didn't really just keep ramming through them at, at a very fast pace. I guess that's maybe something for the review part to be said that that would yeah. be, I think, inadvisable. That you kind of have to give them their own second of breathing time and maybe reread them a couple times. At any rate, so that's, yeah, I was worried they would kind of bleed like a dream. But that that's not, yeah, what I meant. But I think, yeah, that's more of the ephemeral nature. Mm -hmm. Let's make some connections then. Um, These haiku have some, I think, simple connections to 2020. I'll throw mine out there because we're dealing with in this collection, what, a 400-year gap? So what connections are across the 400-year gap of time? Not the longest distance in time that we've had uh, because we did some ancient Greek stuff in there, but certainly 400 is imposing. I I found that simplest connection to be one that I loved as well. And that's that these haiku respond to the changing of seasons, which is always something that I love about a place that I live. I I would have quite a challenging time living in a place that didn't have a pretty clear delineation between seasons. It's Mm -hmm. just things that it gives my year rhythm and it gives me, it it lets me evoke different moods and tones and feelings throughout the year. And I, it's weird. I find I don't match the archetypal changing very much because I love the winter, for example, which is often people associate that with, you know, a slowdown, depression, death, things like that. And I, Mm -hmm. I find the winter to be kind of, I don't know, energizing for me, certainly the fall. 
And so I might not respond to them all the same way as others, but I think each has its place in my life. And I, and I like that the ability to show the change and these haiku acknowledge that again, not always in the same ways I would respond to, but it's got a core thematic idea around that, that I responded to really well. How about you? Any connections you noticed? Yeah. So I also noticed the, the nature, obviously uh, haiku generally, um, uses nature imagery uh, yes, yeah. in its form. Uh, but I kind of took it to a broader sense in that like with haiku, it's celebrating nature in a lot of ways. It's almost like the romantic movement in Western literature, right? Where everything is about mm-hmm. how, amazing, um, how amazing nature is. And this is along the same line. So it made me think of like the fact that there's uh, like Greenpeace and all these other um big groups mm-hmm. who are fighting against um, big companies who are, um, you know, poisoning the earth <laughs> and like uh, mm-hmm. global um, climate change and everything else. Um, so it's like a, an encouragement to appreciate the beauty of nature while we still have it kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's a great connection that also feels odd considering those are concerns that, would have been so foreign and far. I mean, we're talking, these were written well, pre-industrial times even. Yeah. And so it's, but it is almost heartening to know that that appreciation holds up over the, the many hundreds of years. Did you find any, was there also a fear of nature in some of it too? I know one of the haiku I pulled as a quote had some kind of ominousness to it. Did you find any of that to stand out or did you find it to be mostly kind of celebratory or something? I think most of them were celebratory, but the ones dealing mm-hmm. with a lot of the time winter um, dealt mm-hmm. with, I think, more of like the the fears of death and the the fears of um, the end of things in a way. So most of them mm-hmm. are uh, celebratory and, and, and cherry blossoms and all that stuff. And then the winter ones, although still beautiful, right. It's still an appreciation of the beauty of, of winter and that in, in that time, but also the understanding that like, even with nature, there comes an end to things, um, which is an end, you know, a reflection of also human, human life. So, yeah, yeah, that's which for is sure. also beautiful in its own way. So I think so too. And I think, yeah, that as a, as a Buddhist monk, as this man was, I, that would be something that I don't think he would look on with a ton of fear about the passing of life or the death of something. But it it's weird. There was one in here I pulled, and let's just jump right into quotes. These, yeah. This is the clarifying part of the pod where we deep dive in some of the literary elements or rhetorical devices we really liked. This is when we try and clarify the author's style and focus on sort of the thematic elements that were present. Just to be clear, I don't know if you did this too, but every quote I pulled is an entire haiku. It, it's yeah, kind of absurd to. to think you would pull a, yeah. It's <laughs> so if you if you count that as a spoiler, I mean, there's probably, what, over 100 haiku in here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's at least two on each page and there's 55 pages, 56 yeah. pages. So, yeah. And so, I, you know, us reading six to 10 of them is not, that's not really a spoiler, I think. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> hopefully you listener can understand that and appreciate that we're going to read entire haiku here for the quotes. Anyway, I, I can start us off with the winter one. Yeah. It was probably my favorite, but again, a lot of these in the explanations are going to be personal in nature, which is the point of the form, I think, more so than some formalized Western forms of poetry, which can feel like academic exercises. These 
lack that feeling, though they still have those elements to a degree. Anyway, the haiku I chose reads, come on, let's go snow viewing till we're buried. And that's it. That's the, the, a lot of these will end pretty abruptly in that way. But I, it feels like an invitation. Obviously it is. It's a direct command. And I think snow viewing was a term I loved. I, it, it's kind of what I love about winter is it has a certain pure quality to it when the snow is fresh anyway, before yeah. the snow plows come and the mush happens and then it just, you know, the sludge comes and or gets created, I guess. And so there is a certain purity to that. I get the viewing aspect and just it to me is more aesthetically pleasing in the winter to like look out. Like for some reason, a bear tree is more attractive to me than a fully blossomed one and i don't know why that is but i just find it to be more i don't know comforting to look upon so anyway i kind of get that the and also the the final line the till we're buried i I suppose you could interpret that to be a menacing thing but i don't know to me again it was in the winter time the idea of being buried is more of like being comforted i guess being kept up in warmth being and i think especially that it's an invitation, the idea of till we're buried, I'm just not interpreting that as like, we are literally going to be killed by snowfall or, you know, buried under an avalanche. I was thinking more of, it it felt more to me like till we're full up with each other and of the sights and everything. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, to me, I I interpreted that as kind of a, a bit of a love letter to the winter time, the aesthetics of it. I agree. I, I think that the way that I read this one is that it's, I didn't necessarily, I've maybe found like maybe one or two of the haiku in here that I thought was like comparatively negative in, in theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but this one actually I did not find to be negative in, in the same way in that it was, even though it's talking about like death at the end in the beginning, I looked at it as more like, Hey, enjoy your life. Right. Just mm-hmm. go yeah. out, do what you want to do, have a good time. And enjoy your entire life while you have it. So even though it's got that like possibly negative image of being buried, and especially since it's obviously during winter, which is um, a season that's associated with death, it's still he makes it into such a positive by having that that invitation to just enjoy life. Yeah, and, yeah, and if you take the buried. I was taking it quite metaphorically, I think, which then again helps in interpreting it, make it get to feel comforting or warm, kind of a welcoming image. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's certainly how I read that one. But again, my love of wintertime is is quite strong. <laughs> how about any haiku for you? Then did you pick another one that you felt was positive, evocatively? Yeah. Um, so I was looking at um, because it's what I do, like some of the the stylistic choices that um, he made, and I think that. He's a, he's a great writer, period. And so mm-hmm. um, I chose a couple of his haiku that really struck me um, in certain uh, stylistic elements that he chose. So one of them is, uh, I'll just read this one. It says on page four, spring night, cherry blossom dawn. So I really like this one because actually this is one example uh, of his use of juxtaposition that we find throughout a lot of his haiku. So you have spring night, nighttime and then it ends with the dawn so you begin at night and you end with a new beginning and the the cherry Mm -hmm. blossoms too are also a symbol of springtime which is also of renewal and new life so it was just spring spring and then spring night spring and then spring morning and it was just a nice little play on the idea of like renewal and life 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the way that the seasons come into this, and the way that I pretty, I think the symbols too that he likes to deploy with regards to nature, just that imagery. I think a lot of it is played up. I think for clarity too. I don't. I didn't come away from these thinking uh, there's you know deep complex interplay of things happening. It's sort of you sort of get what you get, quote unquote, which sounds maybe condescending, and I definitely don't mean it that way. But right. it's. It sort of just feels nice. It's like the best light compliment word ever, but I think it's kind of fitting here, which is like, oh, that's a nicely constructed poem. It's it's neat. Yeah. Sort of tidy in a way you could say. I think tidy is actually a perfect way to describe a lot of his haiku. Yeah. And I think it just, the form lends itself to that kind of compliment. Yeah. Let's, um, let me throw out one that I thought was kind of aggressively um, negative or ominous then. I still liked it. It was, it struck me as a bit of a tonal contrast when I came upon it. And maybe you picked one this way that fits that description too. The one I picked is on page 31 and it reads, faceless, bones scattered in the field, wind cuts my flesh. And I think- this one is an intriguing one because the ambiguity of haiku and because the brevity of it lends itself to interpretive breadth, I would say. Mm-hmm. That one to me, again, was quite beautiful, but be- there's so much room to interpret that I-, I just wonder how another person would interpret it. For example, faceless as an opener and then it just has a dash after that. I mean, that how do I read that, right? I, I don't know. I, I'm picturing someone who's really cloaked, who's like kind of hidden themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know why there are bones here. I I pictured human bones, like battlefield kind of stuff, just yeah. because of the facelessness of the person, like maybe a warrior of some kind, maybe someone who was in a fight or was in a battle of some sort. Um, mm-hmm. Though it could be, you know, it could be a farmer just with a hat on tending the field. I it's not for me to say exactly, but I think the the scattering and then the wind cutting flesh, the sort of like nature being harsh, giving a harsh reminder of your impermanence or something works well as an image. It just asks a lot of questions. And I think there's a little detail. Yeah, but it gave me a pretty clear feeling. And so in that way, that one stood out as a pretty high achievement. I think that's kind of the point, right? Is that you have a small image that is supposed to make you feel something with great clarity, even if the the words aren't there, even if it's not being told to you completely. So I really enjoyed that one. I'm not sure if you had the same reaction or if you found another one that felt so grim as that. That one was uh, very grim for me. And uh, another one so uh, before I read another one that uh, I thought was pretty grim there uh, with that one, I was thinking that it was um, kind of a discussion of like the, the dreading or the fear of death. Cause I saw the, when it said faceless, I wasn't thinking of himself as faceless. I mm-hmm. was thinking maybe he was looking at something that was faceless, which would be death or mm-hmm. pending death right so there was like a couple of time, a couple of other of his poems where i was like is he foreshadowing his own death is he like kind of predicting is he ill <laughs> uh that kind of mm-hmm. stuff but mm-hmm. it was and then the bones scattered in the field is it is he at a cemetery right is it that he's looking at death like face like not face on obviously because it's faceless but like right, right. Of death so i think that it was despite the fact that it seemed to have a very negative um 
tone about it, right? Because it's it's also saying that the wind is also kind of attacking him in a way nature is attacking him, which is like, you can't escape the fact that, you know, death is going to come for you. Despite that kind of message, I thought that this was actually very well written too. And a very- Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no, there's just no getting around that you and I had deeply different readings inside of it, kind of inside of the poem. Yeah. But that's kind of the point. And I think if we were to somehow in a jar capture our, our feelings at the moment of reading it, I bet the feelings would be kind of similar. I mean, it's clearly a meditation on some kind of death and impermanence. And then also the narrator being kind of thrust into this with the wind. And again, that strikes me as just kind of the point. I mean, you, you envisioned, I envisioned a specific real world historical battle scenario, whatever you envisioned him having an encounter with this sort of metaphorical death being person, whatever God deity, and neither is right or wrong. And they, and, but they kind of evoke the same feeling. And that's to me kind of the success of some of these. Did you have uh, another one? Did you, or were most of yours that you pulled, would you say they evoked positive feelings, negative feelings? Most of mine were uh, positive. I chose the positive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But another positive Mm -hmm. one that I chose um, that I thought really highlighted one of his stylistic choices is um, from page Mm -hmm. one. It's the very first um, haiku in the collection, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in my new robe this morning, someone else. So what I really liked about this is that the, his haiku can be pretty subtle, but when you actually like take the time to look at each word individually and do a comparison with the rest of the words in the haiku, you actually see how how thoughtful he is in his uh, construction of the haiku. So here, it's actually three lines that all mean newness and being new. So in my new robe, literally the word new, this mm-hmm. morning, morning indicates newness and someone else meaning he is not himself. So that is also a new person. So right. a, a whole fresh start almost just by having a new piece of clothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's completely. A very positive thing because sometimes if you, you know, if you look good in a new outfit, you're like, yeah. And you get like a, a new sense of confidence and stuff even. Right. Yeah. One of the ways to reinvent oneself. Yeah. Spring upon or come upon some kind of new identity in your clothing. Also, it just feels between the robe and the and the morning. I don't know about the someone else line, but those first two have a, such a warmth to them, literally. Like that a robe is like this comforting garment and like morning time can. Now, granted, I, I'm even a tough person with a, who has a hard time waking up. I'm a tough wake up in the morning, mm-hmm. but there's still once you're over that like first hurdle, getting over the lethargy of it, it does feel refreshing in the morning to you know have some sun up and everything. Yeah. So yeah, there's a kind of a warmth in those first two lines for sure. It feels yeah. very yeah, it feels very comforting or something. Yeah. Well, I'll pull my final haiku then for my third quote just to get out of the way. I think I mean. I mean, I, this is the redundancy of what I'm about to say doesn't isn't lost on me because I say it every time we review a poetry collection, literally every time, except for maybe the World War One poetry that I took to. But there's just going to be some that you don't respond to. So I, I pulled one that I didn't respond to at all. And I pulled it just because it had the things that usually threw me off the most in these, which are just specific references, either culturally or based on time or place that just make it so I don't have a direct response to what he's saying. One of them from page 44 reads, Over Benkei's temple, flash Yoshitune's sword. 
And I don't know what Ben K's temple is or yep. Ben Kai. And I don't know what Yoshitune's sword is. Now, oh, and then I didn't even finish it. Let me read it again. I, I missed the last line. My mic is covering it. <laughs> You're like, probably like, what the hell? Uh, you didn't even finish. Um, and it's funny too, because the final image for this haiku is like the most important. Anyway, yeah, yeah. the haiku actually reads Over Ben K's temple, flash Yoshitune's sword, May Carp. May is in the mar- month. It, the nature image there is crucial. A lot of haiku end with a quick reference to some sort of nature time period or a month or a season or something. Mm-hmm. I, you know, again, as I was already saying, I don't know Benkei's temple. I don't know Yoshitune's sword. So immediately I'm just thinking, I mean, I can picture a temple. I can even picture some Japanese architecture. I don't know about from the time period, from like the Edo period or whatever, but mm-hmm. I can kind of picture that. I don't know who Yoshitune is. I can picture a sword. I can even picture a sword that would be, you know, like a Japanese style katana type sword. I don't know if that's time period appropriate though. And so I, it just, I feel like ones like that are going to alienate more than welcome in, but it's good that I think that most of the haiku rely on pretty neutral nature imagery. Maybe sure. There's a couple of terms in there. You might have to look up. I remember at some point I had to look up a term that's basically like yam or it's some type of root vegetable. I just didn't know the word and it just looked unfamiliar to me. Mm -hmm. But once I knew that I thought, Oh, okay. It was like sprouting up under a fence or something. And I was thought, okay, yeah, I can, that image makes sense to me. Now I can picture an overgrown fence with, you know, plants growing up around it. So anyway, yeah, I just think that's about as inaccessible as any of them got to me, the one I just read. And even then it wasn't, it wasn't thoroughly off-putting and the commitment of time to reading it is so low that you can kind of just shrug and move on if you want to, or you can do some Googling. Not sure how you felt about those. Uh, Yeah. So there were several that I also like just put question marks and circled words that I was like, okay, I don't know Mm -hmm. that location. I don't know who that is and stuff like that. Um, So those are the ones generally that I was just kind of like, but, um, and this one too, I, I didn't know the place or the person, but what really struck me about this one in particular is actually the comparison of the, the carp to the, the flashing sword. And I thought that was very nicely done because the way that, you know, a carp has the um, like kind of like shinier scales and stuff and they dart underneath like the lily pad. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, you just see flashes of these scales. And I thought that was a really nice image to end mm-hmm. on. So despite not knowing <laughs> anything else about the poem, about the, the haiku, I right, enjoy right. that final image there. Yeah. You almost don't even need to all the way. I mean, yeah. it's helpful to know. I think you're right. The, the kind of elusive nature and the darting nature of a fish in water, like a carp, like you said, especially since they're so brightly colored, they the way they dart around and their appearance. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that the way that can mimic a sword being swung, being flashed. And so, no, I think there's, there's definite wonderful imagery in there. I just, yeah, I, there's enough in, in the names, especially in such a short, condensed little piece. I could see someone, gl- you know, glazing over that. And, you know, it's a fair reaction. Before we move into the review segment, any final haiku you want to you want to read off or talk about? So I noticed that there was actually some organization uh, thematically with some of these haiku, uh, like the beginning ones were kind of like springtime and the idea of newness. Uh, some of the the mid ones were about uh, winter and death and. Uh, kind of the end of things. And I also noticed like a little cluster of what I thought might be like more of like the uh, sexual 
uh, innuendo type stuff, um, which I found those to be on pages like 15 and 16 and possibly 17. Um, yeah. So one of the ones that I chose was from 16 and it says first cherry budding by peach blossoms. So this was the uh, second one in the cluster of possibly sexual haiku. And the reason that I chose this is that I had, because I, I noticed the, the, the clustering of the themes, I, I thought that this might be one of the sexual ones, right? Because it's surrounded by other sexual ones, but mm-hmm. I wasn't 100% sure that it was sexual. I mean, the idea of like budding possibly is like maybe like a sexual awakening, um, and maybe like first cherry, like, cause I know in like Korea, like, um, if you are a cherry boy, that means that you're a virgin boy. Right. So, yeah. That, I think that image gets around. Okay. That was certainly a term like we threw around. Yeah. And then like the peach blossoms from what I remember is like the image of the peach, especially like when the peach is first getting like pink is very sexual um Mm -hmm. in japan so like but that's stuff that i knew from like uh like my my background rather than from just like a a rando person reading stuff right so i could kind of see the sexual stuff and the same thing with the next one which was red plum blossoms were behind the bread screens love or the bead screens love so again it says love in there but the other imagery it's kind of like if you're not already familiar with the culture you're not or some of the cultural symbolism, you're not going to necessarily right. pick up on like the intent there. So I, I chose this haiku in order to to point out that, um, and, and tying it back to my original um, simile, which is that these are really well-written and they're really beautiful. And uh, a lot of the time you can kind of like come up with your own, theme and your own like interpretation of of intent but some of these if you are not really aware of of the culture and the cultural implications you're not necessarily gonna get a whole lot of meaning out of it mm-hmm. yeah well and, it, and it's a good thing to be aware just as the ones you discussed how much how much potency or impact or meaning can come from a piece of fruit that like right. if you're not and th- this is where we get into that territory that puts off readers maybe who, who are those reluctant don't want to read since high school readers yeah. where they think their teacher was making stuff up. <laughs> and that's like <laughs> a classic cynical claim and is like, yeah, I got to see on my essay because my teacher just makes stuff up and I didn't make things up as good as they made it up. You know, it's that kind of take. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the cultural context around that stuff and how much history you have with the form and with the writing of that time period or place, it definitely matters. Yeah. I think, do haiku do these haiku totally transcend those issues? Definitely not. But I think there's enough in here that are written in that again, with the seasons being so important, I feel like everybody has an interpretation of that they can bring to yeah. the to the table. And so yeah, no, those are great readings though. That yeah, would be lost, I think, on I'm sure I didn't even pick up on some of those. I, I remember the beads one when you read it, I definitely remembered um the other ones, maybe not as much. I don't know if I picked up on the cherry boy comparison or language at all. Yeah. That's there. Let's move to the reviews then. This is the official recommendations part of the pod. It's two parts. First, we'll begin with the Russell French in memoriam, what is good about it segment. This is when we just give some genuine praise to whatever we we read, Amanda. 
what is one thing you want to praise about this? I don't mind going first. I've gone first a lot today, actually. What do you know? Look, <laughs> me, look at me taking charge <laughs> instead of just putting it off on you to start everything. Um, I'll happily start. Sure. I think that a lot of the images are just potent and creative. I think that it's a bland compliment, but I'm happy to throw that one out there. I think I want to phrase it this way. This is how I ended up thinking of them as I was reading them. If these images were put into a novel you were reading, it's the thing you would probably bookmark or underline. You'd be like, oh, wow, what a, oh, okay, wow, what an image, or oh, look at that description, okay, that's, you know, what is that, what does that mean? It's just that there's no context around these, there's no novel narrative to plug these into, Mm -hmm. but I think that they have that creative spirit and they're ambiguous enough and interesting enough to draw your attention out and to evoke something. And so I think the, that stuff is so well done. It, it of course lacks story contextualization, which I think a current day, you know, 2020 reader, we, we thrive on narrative. It's how we experience most of our kind of art, even at this point. Right. And so these are maybe a tough sell in that regard, but I found them to be extremely enjoyable to contemplate, even if only for 10 seconds, you know, it's not like you have to sit there for 30 minutes and stare at it. I feel like that's another misconception is that, you have to sit on a mountain and for three hours meditate on a, on one haiku or something. That's like madness, you know? Mm-hmm. I doubt I spent more than a minute thinking about any of these. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if you thought that was a good part of it too, or what do you oh, got for some positivity here, Amanda? For sure. The, the imagery was, it's just really beautifully done. And what I really, really enjoyed was um, the style in mm-hmm. that he yeah. is he is able to impart some beautiful imagery and, and very subtly kind of create a, a kind of form where you can follow each word and connect each word to a particular symbol or meaning. And it was just so meticulously done. I just really enjoyed doing like almost a word by word comparison within that haiku. It was just, there's, it's, it's so rich in style. And that's what mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Yeah, and that credit to the translation by Lucian. Oh shoot, I had the name pulled up here too. It does say in the collection, of course, who tra- Lucian Strick. Don't know who that is, but it's a solid translation and doesn't at all follow the format I knew, and that's okay. <laughs> it was still it still fulfilled the kind of emotional resonance that I thought haiku was supposed to have, and the, the form definitely looked familiar, but it didn't match up with the exact numbers. But right. in the end, you know, who cares? I don't think we need to be that strict or anything. Yeah. Let's end then with our official numerical ratings. We like to rate on a three point system. Pretty simple. A three means that you must read this. A two means that you maybe perhaps should read it. It's a qualified recommendation. And a one means that you must avoid this. Do not read it. I, again, will happily start us off here, Amanda. I, I'm i going to say a three. I, I've been, I did my normal thing where I put two numbers down and figured I would decide over the course of the show. I think the two things that put, put it over the edge into a three for me are the more practical concerns of one, these are hyper short so that you really don't have an excuse to take five minutes of your life one night this week and just think I'll Google three haiku and read them for a minute and think about them and then move, you know, there's such an accessibility to them that it almost feels absurd for me to not recommend them. And then two, a lot of them are free. Certainly these would be free online. I mean, these were written hundreds of years ago. So that is also an accessibility thing. I think the conversation we had, I I felt solid in my reaction to them 
and the construction of them and the enjoyment I got out of reading a lot of them that it would be a three. I just wasn't sure if I would feel the form was maybe too foreign and too unfamiliar for people to kind of get over it. But I think it's worth the effort because if you open your mind and open, let your brain wander while you read them, don't make it literal. Don't think I have to picture myself in Japan sitting on a mountain stream with this man. Just let your brain make the connection it makes. I think that's sort of the point. And I think you'll get some emotional connections out of these. So I think I'm going to commit to the three. I'm curious to hear what you say. Um, So I... For me, I, I put down, actually, I'm going to go with a two. So I also did the mm-hmm. two numbers, but my two numbers were possibly a one or a two. So right. the reason that I was thinking it might be a one is just because I wasn't sure how other people who are not necessarily interested in style, but who want yeah. to have a narrative flow, right? And who want to have um, a clear cut, like, reason for reading it right where it's like of course uh, what is it showing me those people i think would not enjoy reading this Um, yeah yeah but if you but for me i found it enjoyable to read and i i zipped right through this reading like i think it took me less than an hour and i was taking notes as i was reading too Mm -hmm. Um, yeah but some of the poems were better than others in that my own understanding of the poem where if I possibly were more familiar with the culture or uh, more familiar with like the locations and things like that, I I think that I could have derived even more pleasure out of reading these. Um, And I just don't know how committed somebody would be to taking the time to really appreciate these haiku without going in there just generally appreciating literature for literature's sake anyway. Definitely. But I'm going to stick with the two because I, after our conversation, it's just like, it really, even if you struggle with um, the more artsy forms, let's say of, of literature, I think that if you can kind of relax and just enjoy the, uh, how picturesque these images are as you read, I think that you can still derive some pleasure from that. Yeah, I say free yourself from the the narrative yoke. You know, it this is a good way to enjoy construction of writing. And yeah, and be uh, it's almost nice to be unburdened. I mean, as someone who takes in narrative in so many forms every day for my entertainment, right? Like whether it's a book I'm reading or, you know, a movie I watched or a TV show or a game, yada yada. Like so much of it takes the form of narrative. This is I think a nice diversion and in the collection of the things we've read probably the again cleanest easy recommendation because of the accessibility of it and the sort of ease of getting in um i i I think the mistake would be if you imagine that you have to take this to kind of like a lakeside or a mountaintop and and meditate for out you know it's just it doesn't have to be that you know sit stare outside of your window for 10 minutes and read a couple and then move on with your day i just don't yeah don't grant too much sort of spiritual or emotional importance to it. But I think it will still happen if you don't do all of that ritualistic, whatever. I think it, yeah, d- don't get caught up in that. And I, yeah, I still think a three, it's worth the experience and hopefully you'll find at least a couple you connect with. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, I'm glad we came out mostly positive. It's nice to get back in that zone. We had a couple, <laughs> I know in, in the 41 through 60 category, we had a couple of duds and then we came in with one. Was that last week? I didn't even finish the, the ESOP. Yep. <laughs> 
Yeah. Didn't even if you're if you're a dedicated listener and you do all the episodes, uh, we didn't even I didn't even finish the Aesop's Fables and this one I really enjoyed. So we're back in uh, we're back in the positivity zone. I think maybe if I look back in this in a couple weeks and think I overrated it, it was mostly a reaction to wanting to say some nice things again, <laughs> which is fine. Emotional whiplash from the readings. We do have some Bronte poetry coming up next, which should be decidedly more difficult to read. That's my expectation. I don't know if that will prove true, but we'll see how that goes. So that'll be next week's episode. As always, thanks for listening. We are at The Stumped on Instagram. And, you know, tell your friends, rate, review, recommend us, etc. And until next time, we will see you between the classics. Bye.